Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger, and we have a special guest, a special guest who's going to help us talk through the Supreme Court term, uh, a momentous term, and we, you've heard a lot of, from it, about that term from us, and you're not done yet, but we're adding a new voice um, who's going to sanity check us to see if our analysis has been right, uh, and I think you're going to really like this podcast. We're not only going to talk through the term, we're also going to answer some reader mail um, about how the Supreme Court works. Some of it is like Supreme Court 101, but some of it is like Supreme Court 301 and perhaps even 401. Uh, So Sarah, do you want to introduce our guest? Absolutely. Professor Josh Blackman and I have known each other since law school, right? Been a while. Yeah, we uh, we used to meet up at Federalist Society uh, national conventions once a year, the student conferences. And now you are such a big deal and you are a law professor who actually, uh, you know, teaches the next generation, inculcates them into the dark arts. Uh, you're at South Texas college of law in Houston. You teach con law intersection of law and technology, and you write so much about the Supreme court and you're funny and smart about it. And so we had to have you on to do our term wrap up. Well, you are too kind, Sarah. It's good to be with you and good to be with you, David as well. So, I want to start with this, a colleague of yours, Chris Walker, who's at the Ohio State University. uh, He described this term as, quote, this has been such an unusual and important term at the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Roberts has been at the center of it. So there's three points there. that It's unusual, that it was important and that the chief has been at the center. Do you take issue with any of those three points? No, my good friend Chris is right. This is a term unlike any other. Um, We had an impeachment, we had a COVID epidemic, and we had the chief justice rise to be the deciding factor. He was in the majority, I think, in almost 98% of the cases this term. Uh, Even Justice Kennedy, the swing vote, never quite hit that sort of peak. So Roberts is um, stunning with his authority. Uh, It was also significant. We decided cases on uh, immigration, on abortion, on on LGBT rights, on uh, the DACA uh, 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 recipients. Almost every hot button issue came up this term. Um, I can't think of another one that was quite like it in recent memory. David, it was really fun for us to cover. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. So I for had our this inaugural advisory opinions year. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. I fear that the listeners are now going to be treated to a decade of less interesting Supreme Court terms uh, <laughs> after this one. But so I had this great, fun idea uh, that went nowhere that I shared with with Sarah on Slack. Hey, why don't we start off by um, summarizing the Supreme Court term in two sentences each and of And then us. I forgot. And, spe- 
and Sarah forgot to tell Josh. So I lay awake last night thinking of my two sentences. Let's hear and them. Nobody, and nobody else. So here's my two sentences and love, love y'all's thoughts on them. Um, so they're going to be reductive because it's only two sentences. But as I think through this term, it's uh, Chief Justice Roberts turns on Trump, ties himself to Kagan, and tries to settle the culture war. That's one sentence. And number two, Gorsuch goes wild. <laughs> so <laughs> That sounds very dirty. <laughs> <laughs> so those, those are my... Those are my my two sentences. The first one, the most important one, I mean, I think this is, uh, as Sarah, you've written at length, this is the rise of Justice Roberts. And the one thing that really struck me is, it, it you know, on the one hand, he's known as an institutionalist, some have said stableist, but on the other hand, he did some big things. He joined a majority on Bostock, which extends Title VII to LGBTQ Americans. He... Um, he switched sides, uh, to an extent. I mean, you, we've been through the 4014 on June medical, but he, uh, upheld in a way while overturning maybe sort of whole women's health, uh, in the abortion context. Um, and then he, uh, continued his long record with justice Kagan by his side of defending religious liberty. Um, and that's a lot of big stuff right there along with just getting, oh, he's just over the Trump administration as evidenced by the DACA decision. Josh, I feel like some people have said that the chief for this term is a Rorschach test. Yeah. If you're liberal, you think he's was super conservative. If you're conservative, you think he squished out. Uh, how do you balance all of that in your mind? I, I think John Roberts is most happy when everyone's angry at him. <laughs> I, I think that's... <laughs> Then he's he a happy the, man. This you know, when both the you know the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal editorial pages are both criticizing, that's his ideal. So you know he's being criticized for ruling for the abortion clinics, but saying a trap. He's being criticized for uh, uh, upholding DACA, but saying that can be canceled. Um, the only solid victory was the religious liberty case, Espinoza, which David referenced. That was the only victory that was unequivocally for the right. There was no hedging there but the rights of charter schools not to get state funding. That was a out-and-out victory. What about so, Guadalupe? Uh, so Guadalupe was this ministerial exception case, and I think that was a pretty solid victory, but it still left some play in the joints, right? You mentioned that so Kagan... <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that Justice Kagan joined it, and I think that watered down the opinion slightly. So I don't know how much Guad, uh, Guadalupe actually adds. It was a victory, no doubt. It wasn't a loss. But I don't know how much that adds from some of the other cases about uh, ministers and, and different religious employees who can be exempted. I think it was mostly a continuation of prior decisions. Uh, Ian Milheiser at Vox said that even the losses for conservatives were wins in the long term, that these were just short-term losses, uh, especially on abortion, immigration, even gun rights. Uh, how do you see sort of the next terms uh, in the future taking on some of these issues? Do you think that's true? Well, I I get Ian's general point. Robert seemed to be undermining the whole women's health decision, which was a Justice Kennedy joint case from 2017. I'm always skeptical of making predictions to the future because who knows what we'll bring. Maybe we'll get another Supreme Court nomination, right? The, 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 all, the, the court's dynamics may change if Biden wins. Um, also keep in mind that these sort of tactics to 
nudge John Roberts to the center may nudge him again. Who knows? Maybe next year he'll decide, ah, never mind, Holman's health is fine. We'll uphold more abortion laws. Uh, I'm sorry, we'll, 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 we'll kill more abortion laws. So I, I'm very hesitant to make any predictions about John Roberts from term to term because he's so damn unpredictable. He's gone <laughs> wild, uh, like, like Gorsuch has. <laughs> so where do you, Josh, where do you fall in the argument about Gorsuch's Title Seven opinion? There's when when it first came out, um, I I said it was textualism as Gorsuch saw it, and I had a lot of people online jump on me and say, no, 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 this is an absolute perversion of textualism from Gorsuch. This is, if not you know uh, outright you know say positivism. This is this was just really bad textualism, and uh, or so bad that you don't even want to call it that. Um, where where do you stand on the Gorsuch? Bostic opinion. What, what's your analysis of it? Um, I wrote an op-ed with Randy Barnett in National Review, which I think you're familiar with. Um, and, <laughs> heard of it. Heard of yeah, it. you've heard of it. Uh-huh. And we describe Gorsuch's textualism as halfway textualism. And let me explain what I mean. Um, Title VII is you know, almost 60 years old, and there's been a lot of precedent interpreting it. Gorsuch didn't start from first principles. He assumed a lot of decisions from the 80s and 90s correctly interpreted Title VII as a textualist matter and built his analysis on top of those precedents. Well, guess what? Those were, those were opinions from Justice Brennan and some other justices who didn't care about text. So I can't call it textualism because he considers all these precedents that ignored the text. Uh, that's why I think it's halfway textualism. And I think that halfway approach led him astray. If you want to think of it in football terms, he started in the 50-yard line. Right. He didn't start mm-hmm. in his own end zone. He started in the halfway point, taking for granted a lot of liberal jurisprudence. That's I think is probably wrong. So if Gorsuch had simply said he was following the precedent of the court, my criticism would be muted. But he mm-hmm. did not say he was simply following precedent. He insisted, he demanded, he lectured us, really. It was it was it was <laughs> almost it, it was almost de- demagogic, right? He, he's like, he's telling you what the what the text is, but he didn't account for the role of precedent. So I think that's where Gorsuch went awry. He doesn't have a theory for text and precedent. He just assumes precedent's correct or ignores it when he doesn't like it. He doesn't account for it. What was your biggest surprise this term? Oh, boy. You know, I, I, I this is going to sound awful. I wasn't really surprised by the end of the decisions. I, I was pretty sure that Roberts would rule against Trump on the DACA case. I was pretty sure Roberts would rule against Trump on tax returns. Um, uh, the abortion decision was a little bit surprising because I thought Roberts may do a little bit more, but I, I didn't think he would be the fifth vote to uh, uh, uphold a law that was almost identical to the one that was in Texas a couple of years ago. Um, Gorsuch didn't surprise me in Bostock because he signaled that argument. Maybe what about Robert- Oklahoma? Oh my God, let me get to Oklahoma. I, that, <laughs> that was such a bad case. I, 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 you know, I described Gorsuch's textualism as halfway. In, in the Title VII case, in the Oklahoma case, he literally cut the state in half. Um, <laughs> and he made the same error. I actually have a piece in The Atlantic that should be coming out in the next few days on this issue. Um, Justice Gorsuch said, look, I'm a textualist. In 1833, Congress made a treaty with Indian tribes in Oklahoma that says you have this land forever. We know that a lot of these treaties were ignored and, and violated over the years. But Gorsuch says, aha. There was never an express statute that says we are repudiating this treaty. There's all these little nibbling around the edges. So because there's no express statement that we're killing this treaty, the treaty remains. So guess what, Tulsa? You have a new government. You're now an Indian country. 
um, which is a, which is just a radical holding. And I think here Gorsuch made the same sort of mistake. The court has never demanded any sort of precision, you know, magic words, abracadabra to diminish or disestablish a reservation. But Gorsuch says, now we're going to require it, um, which, you know, might be correct as an original matter, but he failed to account for significant precedent about how you read Indian law. So I think Gorsuch is on this sort of Jeremiah to have this appearance of pure, unadulterated, 100-proof Texas, uh, 100% textualism, uh, when in reality, there's some precedent that's seeping into his opinion that he's just not confronting. And I think that undermines his approach. David? But, yeah, I, uh, that, that's interesting. I, I certainly, as you read the Bostick decision, you, it was obvious that he took into account the precedent. I, I still think that part of the, the, the original problem that 90% of, the, 90% of the issue with the Bostick opinion, and like you, I saw this coming a mile away after oral argument. Like after oral argument, I just was like, okay, Title VII's extended. You enact this incredibly sweeping statute with language that was arguably there's evidence that the lang- the, the word sex was inter- was inserted as a poison pill, um, and your your with language that's inserted as a poison pill, and it's going to leave this statute that's so broad that's so sweeping, and. I, with this language that was really not uh, intended originally when the statute was written. And it seems like to me, that's just a recipe for malleability. Um, and at the end of the day, though, when I look at this, and, and people have asked me about this opinion many times, I've said, you know, I got a lot closer to being persuaded by Gorsuch than I thought I would be after I heard him in oral argument. And I guess one of the reasons why I got close to being persuaded by Gorsuch was as I walked through the scenarios, it was very hard for me to see a way out of the Gorsuch reasoning, which was if you're going to have a, a discrimination case brought by an LGBT person, there's going to be a sex aspect to it as well. It's just going to be in there. Yes, there will be a per- specific uh, sexual orientation aspect. Yes, there will be a uh, gender identity aspect, but there will be a sex aspect to it. And the closest I thought that Alito came to rebutting that was when he said, well, what if what if you had a policy, a written policy that said nobody who's LGBT can work here? That would be done irrespective of gender. But again, how it played out in real life, there would always be a sex aspect to it. And I found myself saying, you know, isn't that right? Isn't that right, Professor Blackman? <laughs> um. I think Gorsuch went awry because he focused on two words, because of. His entire opinion harped, turned on what it means to discriminate because of. But he basically shooed away the word discriminate, right? He said discriminate just means to treat differently. Mm-hmm. But if you look in the 1960s, the phrase discriminate against because of sex had a meaning. It had an established understanding, which meant bias or prejudice based on gender norms. Right. It, it had a meaning. If you remember, uh, Ginsburg had a movie, a biopic called um, uh, On the Basis of Sex or On, on Account right. of Sex, which is a, which is a takeoff of the word that was an equal rights amendment. It was a words in Title seven. And Gorsuch just assumed that Justice Brennan correctly interpreted discriminate. He didn't, which is why his approach was halfway. If you recognize that bias plays some role 
in the word discriminate, then these sort of mind games about because of this ingredient that it's just it's irrelevant. Right. He wrote out the core element of Title VII, which was bias and prejudice, which is always going to be pre- uh, present when you discriminate on the basis of gender. Right. I'm going to fire a woman because I think pregnant women uh, can't can handle it. Well, that's, of course, gender plays a role, but it's because you have an idea of what women should be like, how they should behave in the workplace. So Gorsuch's myopia, right, where he just focuses on this phrase because of, I think he he convinced himself with these Kagan logic games of the right <laughs> answer, and he didn't account for what the rest of the damn statute means. There are other words, not just because of, discriminated mm-hmm. against, and that has a meaning that he just, he brushed aside. He fell under Kagan's spell. <laughs> what happens to the line of cases uh, that ended with Obergefell that were about sexual orientation? This is now a whole different line of cases that is on sex discrimination. Have we, did the, is that a dead end now on the sexual orientation line of cases? Look, this decision has a lot of implications elsewhere. Um, we need you, to get to affirmative action also. Yeah, it, it, could, it could affect uh, a gender discrimination under the 14th Amendment. Uh, we have Title IX, which is athletics for high school and perhaps college students. Uh, we have Title VI, which is affirmative action. Um, if we take this logic seriously, which, which I don't, but if we take this logic <laughs> seriously, any time any protected factor plays any role in any decision, it's discrimination, which is not how it's been understood. So, Sarah, you bring up affirmative action. Historically, the court has held that when race is used in a positive factor, it's okay, right? It's it's not prohibited by it. But now if you pick person A over person B and race is a factor, well, that's illegal. So look, I, I, I get all the mind games. I think there's no chance there are five votes to extend this affirmative action. I, you know, I think it's, it's not only Gorsuch even approaches it that way. He's very much one case at a time. He tells us, one, we're going to sign this case. Don't worry about anything else. Um, but this sort of reasoning, I think, would distort huge swaths of our law. And look, maybe Gorsuch is right. Don't gloss over this. You don't think there are five votes on affirmative action. On the Harvard case, on the um, yeah, I don't. Asian I, students I, in Harvard I, that's coming I, up the, the pipeline. I think, here's what I think will happen on affirmative action. I think Roberts will say, okay, so there are two major affirmative action cases in our generation. Uh, the first is for the Michigan case from Michigan Law School called Bruder, which said you can consider diversity. And then there's a follow-up case called Fisher, which was from UT in Austin, which said, well, you can consider diversity and there's some deference. What I think Roberts will do is he'll say, well, Fisher was wrong, but Gruder was right. It's the same thing with abortion, right? We, 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 we killed the more recent opinion, but we go back to you know, Casey, the 1991 opinion. So I think all Roberts says is, well, uh, we gave too much deference here, but we'll go back to Gruder and this is okay, right? Just use Gruder. So look, I don't think there are five votes to overrule any affirmative action cases. Um, now, the, the Harvard case is not a federal constitutional case. It's based on a statute, Title VI, which is, uh, regulates private actors. Um, and I think the courts long held that the Equal Protection Clause is parallel to the Title VI. They're one and the same. So I don't think they'll start erecting different standards, even though they're probably, even though I think the language in Title VI is far more stringent than the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there are five votes. Roberts doesn't like disrupting anything. And schools have built elaborate edifices on affirmative action. Uh, I, but, I just, but wait, I, wait, wait. Scott Roberts doesn't like disrupting anything other than employment law. I mean, he joined. He joined in the. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Disrupting to the right. I'm sorry. I missed. I, my, my, I didn't finish my sentence. <laughs> okay. And, and really, David, if you think about it, by the time Bostock was decided, 
I think four or five circuits had already held that Title VII extends to gay rights, and there have yeah. been precedents up to Wazoo. Once you get past a certain point, you can't undo it. This happened with the Burgerfell. By the time the court granted certiorari in the gay marriage cases, I think, what, almost half the states already had gay marriage at that point. So, I mean, you, what are you going to un- undo them, cancel those marriages? So, I think, I mean, this is the rub with Roberts. Once you get a critical mass of lower courts ruling one way, he's not going to stop it. Um, that's not his MO. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, didn't realize that just putting aside federal, putting aside Title VII, uh, it was about half the country was already living under state non-discrimination laws that prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. I just went and did a quick survey through it, including all of the major um, urban centers of the U.S. basically were under, have had that same legal scenario in addition to the circuits that had already ruled. So the reality was on the ground, the on the ground change here, not, not that, not that great. So let's go to Guadalupe, which I actually feel I, if I'm putting on my religious liberty hat, I'm much happier about Guadalupe, Guadalupe than I am about Espinoza. Okay. Uh, And I'll tell you why. Espinoza, I think is in theory, um, a potentially important case, but it's only in theory because what you have to do is you have to have uh, some pretty considerable state action undertaken at the legislative level before you're going to take advantage of the Espinoza ruling. You're going to have to set up a tuition assistance program. You're going to have to set up a voucher program, et cetera, et cetera, which is often controversial, irrespective of the religious, you know, the funding of religious schools angle to it. Um, and so there, it just gives you, there's potential power. But in Guadalupe, essentially what you have by, by making religious function the, the, the core inquiry for the ministerial exemption, you're answering a question that religious schools have been asking ever since Hosanna Tabor, which is, what about my teachers? What about my coaches? And I think in a very real way with proper employee handbook drafting, you just took maybe 100,000 or more people completely out of the employment non-discrimination. Uh, you, you just remove them from the employment, you know, entirely from employment non-discrimination regime. Um, I think that's pretty momentous. Oh, I agree. I, 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 I you know, I, I, I agree entirely. Um, if you have proper handbooks, right, where you draft a person's function and title in specific fashions, I think you can hug the corners of the Alito opinion. Um, you know, th- this is a case where Kagan had concurred with Alito in Hosanna Tabor nearly a decade ago. And uh, she came back and she, she didn't squish. And look, you had Ginsburg and Sotomayor in dissent basically calling out Kagan saying, look at this, this, this two-person concurrence has become the majority, w- yeah. which tells me that Kennedy was actually one watering down Hosanna Tabor. It wasn't, it wasn't Kagan, it wasn't Breyer. I think, I think Kagan and Breyer firmly believe that religious institutions in their own realm can do as they wish, so long as there are no collateral effects. I think they, they believe that, you know, the sort of monastic approach to religion, in your own building, do whatever you want, just don't deny us birth control, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, Kagan, I'm sorry, Sotomayor and Ginsburg see no role. In fact, they actually see establishment clause violation. This is an old school that if you give any benefit to religion, you're crossing the establishment clause. So it's 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 a huge case. Um, I worry that the lower courts will try and water it down, and they'll take this sort of functional test and say, well, you know, 
this person, you know, only leads one Hail Mary, not two Hail Marys a week. That's not <laughs> enough. You know, I, I'm Jewish. What the hell do I know? Right. Uh, but, 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 um, but I, I do worry because the lower courts basically resisted Hosanna Tabor, which is why this case arose. They made all these like, no, she didn't have the right degree and the right training, all these stupid, you know, ticky tack things. So hopefully the lower courts get the message. But I think you'll still have um, lots of lots of litigation uh, with with employee rights. So let's talk about what the Wall Street Journal called the new chief justice of the court, Elena Kagan. Yeah. Uh, what's your read on, on what all is going on with Elena Kagan? And, and why don't you explain why the Wall Street Journal is referring to her as the next chief justice? Yeah, I, I describe this term as, give me one sentence, the rise of the Kagan court. Um, she is a very influential person. She might be one of the most influential associate justices in a generation. Um, we've had smart justices like, like Scalia was, was brilliant beyond any comparator. But he wasn't influential because he pissed people off, right? He, he, <laughs> he would throw bombs and he would, you know, attack people. Kagan is diplomatic. She worked in the White House. She was the dean of a law school that Sarah Wiltesta is a pit of vipers. Is that, is that, is that fair? <laughs> fair, fair. I mean, the, 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 the Harvard Law School faculty was people at their throats and Kagan trying to keep them calm and serene. So Kagan knows how to massage things. I don't think she has any... Uh, strong enough convictions in most cases to to fight. She'll she'll eventually dissent bitterly, but usually she goes along. And I think the conventional wisdom is she she cuts deals. And let me let me give you one of my own speculations. Um, this year, the court had on its docket ten cases involving the Second Amendment. Ten mm-hmm. about the right to carry, the right to have different types of uh, uh, rifles. You know, every conceivable case they could have taken one, and they were relisted over and over and over and over again. And then finally, the, in the middle of June, what I call Blue June, because it was a very blue month, <laughs> in the middle of Blue June, the court denies all of them. Only Thomas and Kavanaugh would have granted what happened. Well, we also had a bunch of petitions for certiorari on what's called qualified immunity, this doctrine that shields uh, uh, government actors from uh, 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 damage suits if they uh, behave you know, in accordance with precedent. A lot of people don't like qualified immunity because they think it's, it's bad for law enforcement uh, discipline. On the same day the court denies all the Second Amendment cases, the court denies all these qualified immunity cases. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a deal, right? We don't take guns. We don't take uh, police reform. We just throw it off the docket. And I think this is the sort of deal that Kagan could cut. And she will throw her majority opinion wherever it needs to be. And so Roberts has, instead of 5-4, he has 7-2, which is why, again, Hosanna Tabor isn't a perfect example. I'm not sorry. The, uh, the uh, Guadalupe case is not a perfect example, but I do think that there's some language in there that lower courts can grasp onto to, to sort of narrow it. And that's the benefit of being the, uh, not the swing vote, but the, the caboose, if you will, sort of just coming up on the behind, but you want it to be seven, two, not five, four. And that's what matters to Roberts. The, the bottom line is what counts. The reasoning is not very important to him. I'd like to uh, thank our first sponsor today, uh, ExpressVPN. And ExpressVPN makes me want to talk about your internet freedom. Social media companies get to decide what content is suitable for the sensitive among us and censor whatever they don't like. Shouldn't you be the one to decide what you want to read or watch, not them? Well, here's one thing you can control, your access to your data. And that is why you should use ExpressVPN. See, the problem with big tech companies that not only do they censor what you read, but they track what you do online. They track what you're searching for, the videos you watch, and everything you click. 
They use this data to serve you ads and can match your activity to your offline identity using your device's unique IP address. When you use ExpressVPN, these tech companies can't see your IP address at all. Your identity is masked and anonymized by a secure VPN server. Plus, ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and internet bad guys. Does that sound complicated? Well, it's not. The ExpressVPN software takes just one minute to set up on your computer or phone. You tap one button and you're protected. So why give these tech companies a free license to know everything about you and then turn around and sell off your information? It's time to take back your privacy at expressvpn.com slash opinions. By visiting my special link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. And who doesn't like to save money, right? Again, that's expressvpn.com slash opinions. expressvpn.com slash opinions. Protect your data today. So can I, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you my unified Kagan pluralism theory. Okay, so I'm HLS, the generation, not full generation, but half generation. <laughs> Just to be clear, not full generation, half uh-huh. generation Noted. before you guys. Noted. So I'm Dean Bob Clark era. Um, I'm, I'm the era, I was my first part of my 3L year when GQ wrote Beirut on the Charles mm-hmm. uh, about the law school. Pit of Vipers um, was a great description of that time. And and the Vipers were fully activated. Um, and then Elena Kagan comes in and the atmosphere of the school changes. Um, I've, I've said this and forgive me listeners, but uh, I'm not going to presume. I'm, I'm only going to presume that Professor Blackman has listened to 90% of advisory opinions episodes and not 100%. <laughs> and And I've said many times that she came in, she changed the tone of the law school pretty dramatically. She uh, brought in some new faculty. She um, said, I love the Federalist Society. Uh, Sarah, you had a, you had a t-shirt of that? Yep. Yep. Um, Didn't mean that Harvard wasn't progressive in any way, shape or form. Of course, it was still a progressive institution. It was just moved it ever so slightly towards a little bit more pleasant and a little bit more plural, you know, a little more pluralism and a little more pleasantry. And I feel like uh, Elena Kagan is a progressive pluralist uh, by disposition. Like she wants to see room for different communities in this country. And what you talked to, and if you look at from Masterpiece Cake Shop to Guadalupe, she seems to say about religious Americans, even when she's going to, even when they're going to be in sort of extremely non-politically correct causes, I don't want you to target them, and I want their institutions to be uh, reasonably autonomous. And this seems to me consistent to me with kind of this progressive pluralist posture that in disposition that she's had for a long time that was evident even going all the way back to HLS. So that's my unified Kagan progressive pluralist theory. I like theory. it. I like it. I, and I like her. And by the way, she's a fantastic writer. Her opinions are so well-written. Anytime there's a Kagan opinion, read it first, because you'll get to the punchline very quickly. There's no beating around the bush. Um, right now, Roberts is probably the best writer. I put Kagan in a close second, and the third is distant third. I loved the line about she's where she says, hard to believe this is a dissent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How could this be a dissent? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I, this is awful. I read her opinions in a Woody Allen voice. It makes it more, more entertaining. And it just, it, 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 it just, it's delightful. Um, 
Yeah. So did you have any, speaking of writing a uh, best line or footnote uh, that you want to call out? Oh, uh, Roberts had a, had a good line in the Oklahoma case where he was talking about Gorsuch's opinion. And he said that uh, Gorsuch's opinion was a school of red herrings. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a subtle line, but it's so good. Uh, what about all the Hamilton uh, references? It's like Hamilton, the musical gets released on Disney plus, And all of a sudden, I mean, Hamilton, Burr, uh, Philip Schuyler, like they're all yes. showing up in the opinions. It's crazy. I know. You know, it's a Schuyler one. Good job. Uh, th- 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 that, that was Barry, but I did notice that one. Um, you know, for no it's reason, always... like the Schuyler line did not need to be in there at no. all. The only nope. reason it's there is because Angelica, somebody stayed up. Hello, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I'm on the fence about pop culture references and Supreme Court opinions. Uh, if you think about it, in 50 years, we'll anyone know what Veep is, right? I, I've actually never even watched the show. I'm aware of it. Uh, put, I, I, I never watched it. <laughs> put, putting pop culture references is risky because people just may not know. Mm-hmm. I mean, go watch a 20-year-old episode of Seinfeld, and a lot of the jokes just fall flat because the references don't go. But Kagan doesn't mind. I think the Hamilton references are probably good uh, because people know it. Um, and they were, I think, very important to cases involving presidential subpoenas. But it, the Hamilton ones, I think, worked. But I'm cautious about the references in general. My husband, Scott, who you know, is very against such things in Supreme Court opinions. He thinks that they've gotten too colloquial, too cute in general. Um, and so, but I was talking to him about the Hamilton part. And I was like, well, look, but Hamilton's been part of our pop culture for a while. I mean, don't forget the, the Got Milk ads. He had never seen the Hamilton Burr Got Milk ad. So, I yeah, I brought it up on YouTube and he was like, I don't really get it. And I was like, let's watch it again. <laughs> so I made him watch it multiple times. Until well, he all, fully this talk about, all this talk about Hamilton is burying the lead. You've never seen Veep. I'm actually envious of you. <laughs> I'm envious because you have so much good television ahead of you. Like it's so, and the interesting thing is though, if you watch it, if you started watching Veep, from the beginning, it was like an absurdist parody. And then by the end of it, you think maybe one day the administration can be this good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, there's a whole nother strain that we haven't talked about where uh, of the Supreme Court, are they applying the law regardless of where it leads? Or is this an institutionalist majoritarian Supreme Court these days? And 538 um, cited, so did the New York Times, cited this study out of Stanford, Harvard, and UT, that would be the University of Texas, David, uh, Uh, that said the justices' rulings were in line with public opinion in eight out of uh, the 10 major cases this term, which kind of falls in line with what a lot of people think John Roberts is really doing, which is, especially in an election year, trying to keep the court out of basically being the punching bag for both sides of the political spectrum to keep the, you know, as I said in my piece, uh, neither force nor will, just judgment. And if the public no longer believes in the Supreme Court, you end up with the President Jackson, let them enforce it problem. And so Robert is trying to hold on to the court's popularity, integrity, whatever you want to say. And according to Gallup, the Supreme Court's approval rating is the highest it's been in more than a decade. What do you make of the institutionalist argument and how real is it when it conflicts with where perhaps the law should be? I've always been skeptical of this institutional argument. I mean, when I hear the phrase legitimacy, I think that's what the New York Times editorial page wants. This is this is not a real construct, but Roberts is convinced it is. 
Um, in every single case, legitimacy means deferring to the left. That's always where it never, it never goes to the right. This is a one-way ratchet. And it also requires him distorting the law to get there. These tenuous readings of the Affordable Care Act, of DACA, of the Administrative Procedure Act, he has to adopt these bizarre readings of statutes that, that have effects in real-world cases outside of this context, right? And when you keep adopting opinions that everyone knows are not the best reading, that, in my mind, weakens the court's legitimacy because it's no longer a court. It's a political court, but a political minimalist court. It's not trying to reach a conservative outcome. It's trying to sort of walk this tightrope down the middle. And that's not something courts do. They, they can't anticipate the consequences, the fallout of their decisions. Uh, every action is equal and opposite reaction. You can't anticipate where things go. And from term to term, you're just always recalibrating, put a little bit more weight on this side, a little bit more weight on that side. And this, this sort of long game lasts forever. Um, the chief is often described as playing a three-dimensional game of chess. Fine. Eventually, you have a checkmate, right? Or you're just playing against yourself, right? There's no, there's no, there's no end game. It's just this ongoing process of balancing back and forth. And, and I, I don't know how you can describe that as the judicial role. It's something else that's going on. Well, and the Obamacare case is going to be so interesting because, as you said, in 2012, he writes the 5-4 opinion upholding the ACA's individual mandate as a tax. And speaking of not anticipating things... Come to 2017, Congress zeroes out the tax. So now it's no longer a tax, Chief, and the case is back up, and he is pinned into a corner. What happens? You read my mind. I was actually thinking of the Obamacare case in my last comment, and I believe Mr. Keller, who you, you know quite well, was instrumental in bringing this case. I've, I've known Scott for, for, for many moons. Um, right, so the ACA case is back on the docket. Now, due to a scheduling glitch, it will be argued after the election which is probably for the benefit of everyone. I can't imagine the ads on the campaign ads in you know, November about the Obamacare case. Justice Sotomayor will have like, you know, this ad was paid for by Joe Biden for president. You know, <laughs> you know this, this, this is going to be bad. Um, but Roberts is in a bit of a tough spot, but not really. He'll back out of it. Um, I actually did an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief for the Cato Institute. And we argue that after the Tax Cut Act, the ACA's mandate uh, can no longer be saved. Uh, but all the money is on the remedy, and Roberts will simply just say, "Well, we'll just kill the mandate and go home." Um, so, I, you know, I don't think he's in much of a corner. He, you know, he he paints his own corners. He rounds them all the time. <laughs> We've sung um, a lot of severability songs here in this podcast, so yeah. our listeners are very into severability. Cut and, it out. <laughs> and one thing I noted was uh, several of the cases this term. Uh, probably presage what's going to happen in that case, which is, uh, yeah, fine, no problem. It's just it goes away. And everything else stands. CFPB was like this. The robocall case was like this. That was the big case, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the robocall case, which no one particularly should care about for any other reason, except that it tells you what's going to happen in Obamacare. Yeah, no, th that was a huge case. Well, and, you know, another thing that I think we're going to see, let, let's just suppose for the sake of argument that Joe Biden wins. And let's also suppose for the sake of argument that he doesn't, he, he either doesn't have the Senate or doesn't have a filibuster. Uh, he doesn't have enough senators to get rid of the legislative filibuster. So he's kind of in the position a lot of presidents have been in for a long time, which is their main freedom of action is through the regulatory regime. I think one of the knock-on effects of, for example, the DACA decision is, you know, this, this kind of arbitrary and capricious review yeah, it's is tough. now on steroids. Like, it doesn't mean really arbitrary and capricious anymore. It means you got to convince me you're right. And and the lower courts, you're going to see the exact same thing 
that the Trump administration has been frustrated by, the Biden administration will be frustrated by, because armies of litigators are going to run in and challenge every repeal of a Trump-era regulation. They're going to challenge the new Biden regulations. You're going to get nationwide injunctions, and we're going to be, you know, it will, it will be what, you know, if it's Biden administration will be mid 2024 before he knows whether some of his regulations are going to go into effect. And yep. I, I feel like this is going to be an effect of this Roberts. I'm over the Trump administration. Therefore I'm applying this incredibly heightened review <laughs> to everything that it's doing. I, I agree. Um, and just, just so your listeners know, um, when the agencies review, I'm sorry, when the court reviews some sort of agency action, they use a standard known as arbitrary and capricious, which I thought meant, is this absolutely insane? Is this unreasonable? Right. But Robert says, no, you have to persuade me that you considered every conceivable option. And and here, you didn't consider X, Y, and Z, and, and you didn't do it this way, and you didn't jump through these hoops. It's, it's I mean, if I can use an analogy to what's called strict scrutiny, um, it's saying you didn't use the most least restrictive means. You didn't use the most narrow way of getting there because you'd fail to consider it. Now, even you have to consider X, Y, and Z you can always make up a reason after the fact. Well, you didn't consider A, B, and C. Why didn't you right. do that? So, I mean, look, if Roberts is consistent, which I don't expect, uh, then Biden can't do anything uh, of any of any significance. And look, you have courts that will gladly apply the DACA standard to everything Biden does. So speaking of future Biden administration, let's assume another fact that uh, Biden gets so much pressure from the left to pack the court that there's uh, some movement to do that. How do you think the justices on the court would react to something like that? Or would they react? Or would they just accept the will of the political branches? Well, I mean, David mentioned the legislative filibuster. I think it's gone. I mean, I I think they'll... And here's how I think it will go. It won't be with some sort of legislation like the Green New Deal. It'll be there'll be a mass shooting and then some sort of gun control package fails. And as we need to do this, and then you know Joe, uh, Joe Manchin can you know swallow his pride and go along with it uh, and nuke the filibuster, and then then once they get that, they can add courts. Uh, I think they would actually pack the lower courts first because it's not as high, high consequential. People don't really know what the circuit courts are. You know, double the size of the Fifth Circuit, right. double the size of the Ninth Circuit. Let Biden appoint a hundred new federal judges. You know, whatever Trump's record is, just appoint them all at once. Just you know, have this, this assembly line, um, and then whatever gains Trump made will be wiped out you know overnight. Uh, in which case it won't matter. And then at that point, Roberts will just have to reverse everything if that's his goal. You know, the um, other thing that they could do is turn the bankruptcy judges and magistrate judges into Article Three judges. And that would not even come with the same political problem because then it's like, well, look, this has been sort of a weird thing that's existed. And then Biden gets an enormous number of uh, judgeships. And, you know, there's a lot that bankruptcy and magistrate judges do that could further progressive policies. What do you know about bankruptcy judges, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a family affair. Yeah. I always tell my my dad he's unconstitutional, so. I think he is. I'm sorry. I think he's a nice guy, but I, think he's not, I don't, I I don't even know what his position is. Look, the Dems can do lots of funny things with lower court judges. Um, at that point, the Supreme Court might grant 300 cases a year to reverse everything. <laughs> um, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to pack the court with Roberts' little sh- uh, song and dance now. I think it's going to be a lot harder to justify it because people will know that this is garbage. But but the lower courts, I think, will have, you know, adding circuit judges in, in every circuit, adding district court judges. And, you know, frankly, the judges are pretty overworked. In, 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 in a neutral world, they probably do need more federal judges, but you'd have to stagger them in over the course of, you know, a decade, not 
in this one fell swoop, you know, Biden gets 100 appointees and puts, you know, the entire Yale Law School faculty in the Second Circuit, you know, um, <laughs> you know, see what happens. I'm going to have to dispute the uh, notion that federal judges are overworked. I've known a lot of federal judges and overworked is not the word that I would use to describe them. I mean, state okay. trial court judges, state trial court judges. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're, but you walk into a federal district court. It is like walking into church on Saturday, not on <laughs> Sunday. It's, you know, the, the we're going to have some angry federal judges writing us, David. We have several district judges, a couple appellate judges who are going to send emails. I just know it. I'm, I'm, I won't call them out by name, but we're going to get emails. Like to take a moment and, and thank our next sponsor, the Bradley Foundation. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Our guests focus on the big picture and distill what the latest developments mean to our deeply held commitment to restore, strengthen, and protect the principles and institutions of American exceptionalism. Visit bradleyfdn.org backslash liberty. That's bradleyfdn.org backslash liberty to watch our most recent episode featuring Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to our YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new video is posted. Let's move on to SCOTUS 101 some listener questions that we've gotten. Uh, how is it decided who writes the opinions? Well, after a case is argued, the justice holds what's called a conference where they all meet and they all announce how they're going to vote. They start at the chief and they work their way down to the junior justice. Who's in that room? Only the justices, no clerks, no staff, no one's allowed. And it's completely private. Um, after they tally up the votes, the most senior judge in the majority, which is usually the chief justice, says, okay, you get to write the majority opinion. And then the most junior judge in the dissent says, you get to write the dissent. Um, that process is not always final. Often Justice A might write a majority opinion that has some holes. And then Justice B says, you know what? I like the dissent better. That's how things flip. So often the, the votes can change after the conference has happened in the Obamacare case. This happened in the abortion case 30 years ago. Casey, uh, I think it probably happened in Bostock. I don't think the chief originally voted with the majority. I think Gorsuch's opinion flipped the majority. I think Gorsuch could knock along with the chief's opinion. Uh, so these things are fluid. Uh, and how do they share them in advance? Is it, you know, uh, they email them around and have little post-it notes on them or what? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think it actually varies. Um, some of the justices probably do use tablets and electronic devices. I think some of the older justices would use paper, although now that Kennedy's gone, I don't think anyone's still old school. Uh, Thomas is actually pretty digital. He doesn't, he doesn't use the paper stuff. Um, I hope that some sort of very secure VPN and some sort of really <laughs> secure way of exchanging opinions. I mean, there are, surpri- there are leaks for sure. I think Bostock, there was a leak, but there's surprisingly few leaks. I think they, they're, they're no, no one's been able to hack the court. Something I, I do worry about because they're, you know, uh, the justices and their clerks, they do go on public websites. They do click on links and they do get the same sort of spoofing emails we all get. So I'm, I'm grateful they haven't had any sort of leaks yet. Well, and when things uh, shifted online this year, uh, 
I remember, remember the website went down uh, early on in coronavirus and everyone was concerned. And then Twitter, of course, yesterday being hacked. This is not a crazy notion. Uh, David, do you have 101 questions as well? No, I think we can move on to the okay, some of the 301s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here's a listener email. Um, I know that four grants are required to grant certiorari, but what if standing severability, et cetera, was not raised in the lower courts and therefore wasn't raised in the petitioner's QP and a justice believes that to be either a threshold issue or an issue he or she would like to be briefed or argue? How does a QP get added after the fact and how many votes does that take? Right. There's no clear answer how many questions to add a question presented a QP. My suspicion is one will do it and others will, will have a courtesy. And I'll use an example. In 2010, the court heard McDonald v. Chicago. This was a Second Amendment case from Chicago of whether the right to bear arms is incorporated. Um, only one justice was interested in the question of the privileges or immunities clause, which is Justice Thomas. And it keeps getting added on privileges or immunities. And I can't imagine anyone else cared. So I think if one asks for a QP, they'll usually go along with it. That, that's my that's my read. Okay, and here's my senior level one because David and I have talked about it. Scott and I spent, um, uh, <laughs> guys, we have very exciting nights here in our legal household. <laughs> we like pulled out <laughs> the big textbooks on this one. So we'll see what Josh thinks about it. Uh, so if it takes four justices to take a case, to grant cert, how many justices does it take to dig a case and does it need to be one of the justices who had originally voted to grant cert? <laughs> well, the, the dig is what's known as dismissed as improvidently granted. Um, and let me just give some 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 backstory. Uh, the clerks on the court have a pool where they share memos and they all write, you know, this case should be denied, this case should be granted. Uh, occasionally, the court will grant a case where there's an error. Uh, there's some sort of factual problem. There's some sort of reason why it's not a good vehicle, as they say in the lingo. And they'll dig the case, they'll dismiss it. Uh, from, from what I know, that the clerk who recommends a grant that's digged is like scorned. It's like he's, you know, he, he's, he, he's exiled because he wasted everyone's time in, in, I mean, money. I mean, just so much effort was wasted. Um, I think you need five to dig the case. Um, and I'll it, give an example. But can it just be, can it just be like, basically then the five who didn't vote to grant cert could dig any case they wanted in theory, which would kind of present a whole nother institutional problem at least. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's true. But I think that, um, uh, I think that would piss people off and probably wouldn't be very popular. <laughs> so let, let me give, let me give an example. Last year, the court decided the New York pistol and rifle case. This was a case from New York about the second amendment. Um, New York took bold steps to dig the case. They, 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 they tried to moot it out. They said, oh, this law has been repealed. I actually thought the court would dig it and just get rid of it. But they just actually spent months deciding a case in the merits about mootness, which they didn't have to do. Um, I don't know that there was a majority to dig the case. If there was, they would have gotten rid of it. So instead, they had this sort of procurium opinion on mootness that sort of said, oh, just, just go away. So that's a case where I expected a dig and there wasn't, which means maybe the votes to dig are more significant than we're aware. I think they just don't like doing that in a high profile case. So can I, can I ask a question that is not one of our reader mail 101, 301, 401? All right. Wither the second amendment. <laughs> Sad. Uh, I, it, it's, Sad. It's, it's hard for me to see because they, they denied cert on what I would call some of the easier cases where 
We're not even talking the assault weapons ban. They, they, of course, they denied certain assault weapons ban, ban. The harder cases, in my view, on the Second Amendment are your magazine capacity, your assault weapons cases. Those are the ones that are harder cases, uh, I would think, in the Supreme Court. But some of these, which just dealt with your basic ability to bear a weapon outside the home, they were dismissed as well. And the question is, if the if you're going to grant cert, so far the only cert grant post McDonald Heller is this weirdo New York City uh, ordinance that basically prohibited you from ever carrying it ever outside the home under any conditions other than to these few gun ranges. Do we have a prospect for a Second Amendment jurisprudence anywhere in the near future? No. Look, I I was in law school when Heller was decided back in 2008, and I was. Thrilled. It's like, oh my God, we have this new thing. It's it's awesome. And now basically 12 years later, we're in the same position. Say we, we've gone nowhere. I think it's yeah. dead. I would almost rather the court grant certain say that this right only means a gun to home and nothing else and just stop wasting our time. That way I don't have to write about it. I don't have to think about it. Just let it go. Don't don't keep my hopes alive when there's nothing there. Yeah, it is, you know, oh, we've talked about well, what, have they been waiting for the law to mature? No, no. I mean, this is, this is, uh, at this point, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone and they're wanting to protect gun rights, my, my advice to them is state legislatures. That's, that's it. And if you're in a blue, blue state, it's just like, you gotta move. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Texas is always open. Well, look, Congress is, 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 it may go the other way soon. And look, if the filibuster goes, I think we will get federal gun control legislation. I think that's, that, that's one of the first agenda items because it's so easy. Uh, they, won't, they won't ban anything. They say, you know, they, you just can't buy new weapons. They'll just be attrition. Um, right. I, I think that's, that's, that's a given with the Biden Congress. But, and you've, you, you know, you, I think you may have read the galleys of my book when you say that uh, filibuster, abo- the filibuster will be abolished in a time of, crisis or emergency. Uh, I think that's, I think that's when it happens. Uh, if it's going to happen, I think that's when it happens. And then that will be at also, also exactly the worst time for it to happen in some ways, because it will then be seen as exploitation of tragedy or exploitation of a crisis and will further destabilize our constitutional Republic. But, um, on anyway. that uplifting note, yeah. <laughs> uh, Josh, thank you so much for being here. For people who uh, do not know all of your work, you are the hardest working man in the law scholarship business. So now that you know Josh, you're going to see his name everywhere, quoted in everything, writing in every you know uh, you know outlet that you ever watch. Josh will be there. Um, so we need to end on perhaps with what limited free time I can imagine that you have. Uh, it makes sense to me that you haven't watched Veep because I'm sure you were writing op-eds and law review articles while the rest of us were watching <laughs> Veep. But we need to end on this. What is your favorite law movie? Oh, My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> I mean, that feels like almost such a cop-out. We're, you know what? We're I taking know, My I Cousin know. Vinny off the table because that's everyone's favorite law movie. Oh, boy. What is your favorite um, law movie that is not My Cousin Vinny? All right. Uh, uh, the Amistad was pretty good. That, that was sort of an old school movie. Yeah. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, one of his first roles, right. I believe. Yeah. David, what do you think? Uh, my Cousin Vinny. No. <laughs> yes. 
cop out, cop out. It's it not a, a cop out. It is a classic. It's, it's everyone's favorite. I should have taken it off the the table in the first place. Uh, yeah, it it's just. I mean, okay. I mean, and well, then if we're going to do my cousin Vinny, we've got to. If we're going to remove that, you've also got to remove a few good Kill men. No, Kill twelve was, angry men. No. Okay, fine. Well, I have I have two then. Mine are uh, legally blonde. Which okay. I think is actually pretty accurate about Harvard Law School. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Harvard I went to. I will just say that. Um, it, it felt very accurate to my experience in terms of like, you're like talking to someone and you're like, oh, this person seems nice and normal. And like, you know, you're like, what did you do last summer? And they're like, I was deworming orphans in Somalia. And you're like, oh, of course you were. Okay. Yes. Everyone here is uh, special and interesting. Um, but maybe even more so Adam's rib. I'm a big Spencer and Tracy fan. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting looks of total like never heard of this. I've never even heard of that movie. Oh my nope. god, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, they're both lawyers. Listeners, please back me up on Adam's Rib being this wonderful, very popular, very famous movie. So popular, so famous. <laughs> I'm the old one. All right, here. can I I'll have a fallback from my cousin Vinny and this is this is an old one. Um The Paper Chase. Okay. That's That's good. your era. Yeah. Of my era. I was four <laughs> years old when it came out. No, you oh, weren't. Okay. Really? Yeah. No. Gen X. Just to be precise. Gen X. All right. 69. Born in 69 is Gen X. No, Piper Ch- Paper Chase, which is the story of a first year at Harvard Law School, of the Harvard Law School of years past, um, is really well done. And I remember watching that because when I got admitted to law school, Law school was like a late addition to my life plan. I didn't know what law school was going to be like. So I eagerly got 1L by Scott Turow. I was going to say 1L is like your, you know, like, sorry, if if Paper Chase is the 70s, 1L is the 80s. We need a 90s one. And then Legally Blonde. That's Legally Blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Legally Blonde. (laughs) Yeah. But some of those professors who were, you know, who inspired both the Paper Chase and 1L were still, were still there. And I mean, in fairness, striking, they never die. They're still there now. Yeah, they're still <laughs> striking <laughs> fear, and it it reminds me of the great line the 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 line of the um of the year my one L year from one of these old school Socratic professors, uh, and it was printed on a T shirt. I guess every generation has to have something printed on a T shirt yeah, for sure. Yours was I love the Federalist Society. Yep. Mine was I believe, and I believe I'm getting the name right. Mr. Zitrain says yes. Does anyone have a shorter and possibly more accurate answer? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us for our thank Supreme you. Court wrap up. This is thank the you. best. Yeah. Thank you. Always happy to join. David, parting thoughts? No, I have no real parting th- thoughts. This has been a real treat. Um, just reading between the lines, I'm just taking away from here. Uh, there's a subtle disapproval you've expressed of the Justice Roberts jurisprudence. Just a bit, just a little bit. Very <laughs> subtle. I'm for, I'm perceptive. This is the kind of perception you're yes. going to get in the Advisory Opinions podcast. But we thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, so for much, joining Sarah us. and David. Pleasure to be here. And that's it for us. This has been the Advisory Opinions podcast. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.